Good morning, everyone. Good morning. I love a little upbeat tune there to get my blood flowing. And uh, it was great worshiping with you. Thank you, Hosanna and the team, for leading us. Um, wonderful job, sweetheart. Um, it, it is just so good to be with you. Uh, last week, Pastor Ty just brought a word. And uh, it was so, so good, so powerful in our second week in, in this Made New series. Now, um, we have a little bit of family business that needs to be addressed today. Um, I hate to do this, uh, but we have to have a little discussion about our church dress code. Um, I'm kidding. Some of us got really self-conscious right there, though. That was fun. That was really fun. I, I know some of you were like, oh, suddenly Pastor Brent's all hoity-toity and saying I can't wear Crocs with dress socks to church. And before you get all bent out of shape about that, that's exactly what I'm saying. Don't wear Crocs with dress, dress socks to church. But... Uh, you're not really in trouble. Um, today, I, I figured I would do that to get your attention. So now, now I've, got, I've got your attention. But we are going to be talking about dress code. Um, so so uh, let me just tell you that I am a proponent of whatever the lowest possible denominator of formality is, that's where I like to be. Like, I am Captain Casual. Um, if, if it's a black tie event, I'm like, technically, can you wear a tie with shorts? I think you can, right? You can... Um, and uh, even if I, I, I really did have at one point one of those t-shirts that had the tuxedo printed on it So I could really uh, class it up if I needed to I just, I'm a, I'm a casual kind of guy um, as, Like family Thanksgivings, my wife is like, Brent, you need to just at least show up looking a little bit nice It's, a, you know, it's Thanksgiving, we're going to have a nice dinner together And I'm like, sweetheart, this is my Olympics, okay? They make elastic bands for a reason for Thanksgiving This is, you know, this is what I need to be doing um, so, so I, I've named my message today, What Not to Wear, and uh, it's a show I've never actually seen. I'm completely ignorant to it, but uh, it's just a name that I, I thought fit really well, and it fits my message perfectly, so you can attach any other meanings from the show that I guess that, that go with that, but uh, I, I'm actually fairly unfamiliar with the show. But it's entitled, What Not to Wear. And so Paul writes a letter, uh, and in it he addresses... Uh, this church's dress code. And so let's read it together. It's in the book of Colossians. So let's open our Bibles uh, to the book of Colossians. We're going to be in chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. And we're going to start in verse 8. It says this, But now is the time to get rid of anger, rage, malicious behavior, slander, and dirty language. Don't lie to each other. For you have stripped off your old nature and all of its wicked deeds. Put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your Creator and become like Him. In this new life, it doesn't matter if you are a Jew or a Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized, slave or free. Christ is all that matters and He lives in all of us. Since God chose you to be the holy people He loves, you must clothe yourself with tender-hearted mercies, mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. Above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony. So Paul writes this letter, and this letter to the church in Colossae is a unique one. Um, 
it's interesting, I was doing my studying on Monday for my message. I had a conference to go to on Tuesday. So I did all the studying and, uh, and background studies and all kinds of things on Colossians. And I went up there and the guy that was speaking at one of the conferences was like, I'm going to be speaking from Colossians. And he gave all this background information that I had just studied. And I turned to my staff and I was like, I swear I'm not stealing this guy's stuff. This is, I studied this, okay? But uh, Colossians is an interesting book because it's one of the only epistles Paul wrote other than Romans, that was to a church that he didn't actually plant. He didn't actually go to Colossae. Colossae was actually a church that was started by one of Paul's disciples named Epaphras. And so Epaphras had followed around and been part of what, what Paul was doing, and then he took the gospel to Colossae and planted a church. And it was awesome, and, and it was growing, and things were happening there, and good things were happening. And so um, Paul writes this letter because... because uh, if you read in Colossians chapter 1, verse 7, he gives a little explanation. He said, You learned about the good news from Epaphras. And the word learned there means systematic instruction. He gave systematic understanding of what the gospel is all about. And see, this was important that they had systematic understanding. And what Paul wrote then, theological doctrine, was important that they understood because they were living in a difficult situation. There were heresies going around, meaning that there were doctrines that weren't true that were confronting this church. Um, they were hearing contradictory messages from all around. Um, they, were, they didn't have the convenience of having Peter or Paul right there. They could run a question by. The apostles weren't there. They were a planted church out kind of on the edge of known society. And so this church was in a really difficult spot. They were in a place where they needed to understand their, their true, uh, truly what, what, uh, what new life meant. And so they lived in this area, which is in modern-day Turkey, that's inland a ways. It's on, on a river there. And uh, this area was heavily influenced by Hellenistic uh, philosophy. So you've got Hellenism is, is Greek and Roman gods and things of that nature, all that art and things like that, uh, that aesthetic is in their culture. And so because they're, they're heavily influenced by the Greek and Roman gods, as you know, much of Greek theology and Roman theology at the time was appeasing the gods, keeping them happy, Right? And so they're constantly making sacrifices and offerings and having special festivals just to keep the gods at ease. So these new believers come to the faith in what was called the, the way or the, um, and, 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 and they were these Christians, these little, little Christs in their community. And suddenly at these festivals, I'm sure people were going, hey, where's, where's Larry? We're supposed to be appeasing the gods here. And they say, oh, he's one of those new followers of the way. He's not coming to appease the gods. And so they have these festivals and these events. And what do you think happens if something bad happens in that community? Who gets the blame? The gods are angry. It's those new followers of the way. And they begin to be uh, persecuted. Uh, as a matter of fact, right around the same time this was written, uh, most, most uh, historians believe that this letter was written around the year 62 AD. Right around the year 60 to 63 AD, there was a massive earthquake that actually destroyed much of Colossae. Imagine this huge natural disaster that they couldn't explain happening and immediately going to who, who, what could have caused this? What gods are angry? Who could have upset the gods? And so there's this, this, uh, this pressure that's on them. There's this persecution that's following them. And then right behind that, as we've talked about with Paul in, in previous messages, come the Judaizers. So they're saying, not only do you have this teaching that Paul's given you, but we've got some extra rules you forgot about. And so they're getting bombarded from all different sides, all this different doctrine, all these things. Maybe you could just include the gods in your theology. Maybe we could throw in the, uh, the Greek gods with that so you can, uh, so you can be uh, kind of appeasing them at the same time. 
So they've got all these external pressures pushing in, and, and they were young in their faith. They, they, they were young, and they didn't have this direct influence of the apostles. And so as the title of this chapter indicates, chapter 3, if you have a title heading on your, in your Bible there, it, sa- it has to do with, um, Paul walks them through what it means to live in this new life, which fits so well with our series, Made New. What does it mean as a person that's active in this new life that you've been given, you've been made new, how do we live it out? And so this is what Paul is addressing. So Paul opens this chapter with talking about the things that we've talked about previously, putting to death our sin, our sinful nature, um, living in sexual purity, and then he changes gear. And he's talking about then, in this gear change, one of the big topics he wanted them to grasp was how do we live in community with one another? How do we relate with one another? How, how does our community live? And so in week one, like we talked about, we talked about uh, putting to death the old self, freedom from legalism. Um, last week, Pastor Ty explained how we live with unique purpose in our life. We're no longer finding fulfillment in entertainment and distractions and all those other things, but in making much of Jesus. And today, as we close out our series, we're going to look at, as new creation people, how we live among one another. Everybody say, new creation people. Oh, say it with conviction. New creation people. Yes, we are new creation people. We are new creation people. And so Paul uses clothing as his metaphor in this section of scripture. So first of all, Paul opens with what we're supposed to remove, what we're supposed to take off. So in verse 8, he says, Now is the time to get rid of anger, rage, malicious behavior, slander, and dirty language. Don't lie to each other. For you have stripped off your old sinful nature and all of its wicked deeds. So I want us to take a look at this list more in depth together. So first he starts with anger and rage. And when we hear the words anger and rage, often I kind of think they're synonymous, right? They're, they're kind of the same thing, anger and rage. But really, they are very different words. Anger, which is arge in the, in, the, in the Greek, is a natural disposition of a person. It's their temperament. It's their character. Kind of their baseline. I am always angry. You ever know someone that looks like they're walking around and there's always a rock in their shoe? You know what I'm talking about? Um, it, it's kind of interesting that this word, if you can go to the next slide for me there, it's kind of interesting when you look at this word, it, it kind of, you see down here in, the, in the, the, the Greek, it kind of looks a lot like our word ogre, doesn't it? Now, the etymology does not connect. I don't want you to think that there's some sort of connection there, but I think it's just ironic that you kind of see the word ogre there, and I think of uh, uh, the, the, the Shrek movies, right? Just always a little bit bent out of shape, always a little bit angry. And, um, and, and so a word study of this, as you read the actual background of this word and what kind of the imagery that comes to mind when the readers would read this, is that it means to team with. Have you ever seen like the... the, uh, the feeder goldfish tanks in a pet store where they have all like the 10, fin- t- 10 cent goldfish and it's just teeming with fish. They're just crammed in there. That's that kind of feeling. There's always this anger teeming inside. It also means especially like to swell with juice like plants or fruits would have just to be bursting forth with this, this feeling. It might be people that say, you know what? I'm not an angry person. I'm just surrounded by imbeciles. Um, the other day, uh, one of my kids had their sports game, a baseball game, and there was a parent that was there at the game, and they would yell about just, the play would be over, and things would be done, and they'd go, pick up the bat! And just like that, and, and, and everybody would kind of grip their chairs a little bit, you know, and, and the, the, the play's over, but he's just always right there, and I realized, he's not really, like, losing it, this is him, that's just him. 
And so there's a level of anger that some people live with, where it's just always right there, just, just always I'm, I'm, I'm surrounded by people that are just pushing me past the edge. I'm not a pessimist, I'm a realist. And there's a simmering anger all the time beneath the surface. The second word then is rage, which is thumas, and that's wrath. That's a moment of passion. Have you ever had a boil over? If you haven't, you aren't human, right? Where you just lose it. Uh, I remember, I'm not a fighter, I'm a lover. Uh, but, uh, but in fifth grade, I was playing soccer on the soccer field, and uh, this one kid named Sean uh, did something that just set me off. I don't even know what it was, but I was like, I'm going to kill him. And like this fire ignited in me, and I lost control of my limbs. My head was swimming, and I was like, ah! and I came at him like a windmill. And, and I was on him, but not like on the ground. I was just next to him like windmilling wildly. And he, I literally kid you not, he goes, what are you doing? I didn't get in trouble to go to the principal's office because no one knew I was fighting. I was just out of control. But we have those moments where suddenly rage takes over us, where we have no control, we can't handle it, just, oh, it just comes out. And that's what he calls us to control our rage. Um, it could be that you have a coworker or a family member or an acquaintance or relative that knows the exact button to push that will just set you off. It could be at Thanksgiving dinner. <laughs> it could be a political comment and you just are like, you know what, how dare you say that about our Secretary of Agriculture? They're a good person. You know, and just, it just sets you alight. They, they just have a way of getting under your skin. Groucho Marx said, Speak when you are angry, and you will make the best speech that you will ever regret. How many of us have ever gone and go, Oh, if I could just bring those words back. If I could mend that relationship. Proverbs 17.27 says, A truly wise person uses few words, and a person with understanding is even-tempered. There's multiple times in Proverbs where it talks about when there's an excess of words, be ready for sin to be there. Sometimes our mouths can get us into so much trouble. I won't say sometimes, a lot of times. A lot of times. The next thing Paul lists is malicious behavior, which is translated as kakia. Now, that's not just towards anyone who drives a kia. I want to make sure we delineate that. But it's the desire to injure, to wound. It's wickedness and depravity. And I won't go further into detail on that, but it's pretty clear that it's, it's wanting to hurt someone. Maybe they hurt you first and you want to see them wounded back to understand how you feel. Then he goes on to talk about slander. Slander is literally translated, translated as blasphemy. And blasphemy is defamatory speech. You may say, well, good, slander spoken, spoken, uh, but the Bible doesn't say anything about libel. Maybe I could type something really bad about someone. No, it's all defamatory speech that the Bible's talking about. When we tear each other down, uh, it's intended to hurt and wound someone, especially behind their back. Have you ever felt like the people you enjoy being around the most are people that don't only make you feel better when you walk away, but make you feel better because of the way they talk about other people? They just are an encourager. They, you, you know when you walk away they, that they're not talking about you in some way. When, when they're going to have a conversation with someone else, it's not going to turn and they're going to be discussing you. But rather, that, that speech is, is uplifting. Then he says dirty language, which is just simply translated as obscene speech. And Paul says, don't lie to each other. And you may say, Pastor Brent, I do my best. I'm pretty much not a liar. I can't think of a time where I just blatantly told someone a straight-up lie. 
And we could get into what's a, a, a little white lie and all those different things. But, but the word lie is, is translated as uh, pseudomai. And you can see in that prefix there, pseudo. Pseudo. And I think we could probably think of several words that have pseudo in them, that, that prefix. And of course, pseudo means quasi or styled or fraudulent. Um, trying to pass as the real thing. And how often do we present ourselves or present a situation disingenuously, deliberately trying to mislead someone? Sometimes we pass it off as, well, I didn't tell a direct lie, but we try to just mislead a little bit, take them off the scent. And that's what Paul is talking about, this pseudo-truth that we speak. He says we can't do that. We can't live like that among one another. So Paul gives this list and then he says, we're supposed to strip all these things away and remove them like old clothing. And when we remove clothing, that that leaves us one thing. Do you know what happens when you remove clothing? You're left with being naked. You're naked. Right? So he says we're supposed to remove these things, and, but when you remove something, when you remove your clothing, you're left naked, you're left vulnerable. And if we ju- just try to remove these things, it's just being behavior correction. If we just say, here's a list of what, the things that Paul said we need to stop doing, I'm going to try to correct my behavior. I'm just going to try to stop being such an angry person. I'm going to try to stop letting my rage take, take over. I'm going to try to stop gossiping so much. I'm going to try to stop using so much bad language. But the problem is we may be removing these things somewhat successfully, but it leaves us naked and vulnerable. And the truth is that space is eventually going to be clothed in something. And we revert back to the old habits. The old way of behaving. In Matthew 12, Jesus tells a parable. It's an interesting parable. He talks about a demon that's cast out of someone and it goes out into the wilderness. And while the demon's out there wandering around, he comes across seven more demons that are even more evil than himself, and he comes back to that person. And he finds that person. It says it's been, the, the, the house has been swept and cleaned and in order. And do you know what the demon says? He cleaned up for us. Let's move in. And all the demons come in, and he says he's even worse off than he was before. Oftentimes we handle inner demons. We handle things in our lives. Maybe Jesus helps us take care of some things that we're working on and that area is swept clean and we take care of it. But you know what? It's not filled with what it should be filled with and that space is then refilled, sometimes even worse than it was before. So when Paul says we're to strip these things off, it's, he doesn't just end there. He doesn't just say, take, knock it off with the bad behavior. Let's just try to correct some of these bad habits. But rather, he says, we need to put on then a new nature. Put on your new nature, he says, and be renewed as you learn to know your creator and become like him. Since God chose you to be the holy people he loves, you must clothe yourselves with tenderhearted mercy, kindness, Humility, gentleness, and patience. Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. And above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony. So the first thing, let's go through this list briefly. The first thing Paul says we're to clothe ourselves with is tender-hearted mercy. Tender-hearted mercy sounds like a really bad romance novel of some sort, you know, like, I don't, I don't know, a paperback, tender-hearted mercy. But, uh, but it's interesting. The heart is where we attribute emotion, right? I can say to my wife, I love you with all of my heart, or my heart is broken. We think of heart as being that place where emotion and feeling is connected. 
but it was not that in the first century. This was translated for us to get kind of a grasp of what, what it actually is saying. But do you know what the actual translation is that Paul said here? He said, the bowels of mercy. That's a little different than the heart. Some of us would say gross. <laughs> the bowels of mercy. You see, because in the first century, the heart was actually where, where the source of, the, of thought and the will. To will something, to say, I'm committed to that. But the bowels, the, 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 the stomach was somewhere where you were moved with compassion. Physically, viscerally, more violent passions came from your gut. And so when he said this, our bowels of mercy, he's, have you ever had your stomach ache with emotion? Where you're so broken, you can feel your stomach just feel like it's turning knots and twisting inside of you. You feel like a rock's been dropped in it. That's the kind of emotion he's talking about. It's the same definition as the word Jesus used in, in uh, the story of the Good Samaritan. It's the same definition, but of course Jesus wasn't speaking in the Greek at that time. He was uh, speaking to a different group. But it's the same definition that says the, 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 um, the visceral feeling. So when the Good Samaritan's coming along, And he sees this man broken and beaten and dying on the side of the road. He didn't go, I really should do something. But he was moved. He saw him and he ached for him. He was burdened for this man. And he bent down and at great personal cost gave him the oil he had, the wine that he had. And he paid two months salary just to make sure that this man would be taken care of. And said, I'll pay whatever's remaining too if there's anything left. That's the kind of move that we're talking about. How many of us have ever done enough just to dissuade our, our, our feelings of guilt if we haven't helped someone? Have you ever seen someone on the side of the road and you think, I'm going to just do something so I don't feel so bad. At least I've done something. I've been there too many times. But this is a call beyond that. It's a call to great personal cost. And this is the kind of thing that we are supposed to feel this kind of, uh, this kind of tender-hearted mercy towards one another is to have a mercy that is so strong it actually moves us at a visceral level. But too often we don't have that kind of mercy towards one another. Rather, it's dog-eat-dog dog out there. But among one another we are called to do something more. You see, we can do things obediently, but with great displeasure and out of obligation, right? Well, I'm supposed to do this. Um, I don't know if a, as a child you were ever told to go tell someone you were sorry and you really weren't sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? We can do these things out of obligation. We can do things because the Bible told me to and I'm going to go do it. But rather, we are called to actually act out of a, a, a compassion that comes deep from within us. When we put on these new clothes, our passions change. It's no longer a, out of the external forces obligating us to be compassionate, but from our innermost being that we act. It's no longer from the obligations, well, God told me to, the Bible told me to, Pastor Brent will get on my case, but because we are compelled to from who we are on the inside. It goes on in his list, and I'll just kind of combine these. He talks about kindness. He says we are to be, uh, have kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. And I think these are all fairly self-explanatory. We could dig into each one, I'm sure, to a great degree. But they're far too often missed. Um, in our last year, there have been some majorly polarizing events in our world. With COVID, and the events of uh, racial conflict, and uh, really the reckoning that's happened. There have been a lot of opinions shared. I've realized that... <laughs> People have a lot of opinions and they're ready to share them. 
And there's nothing wrong with having opinions. Everyone has one. I have one myself, believe it or not. I know. I was shocked. But I have seen in this last year Christians, believers, turning against other believers as I've never seen before. I've seen Scripture be weaponized against other believers. And my knowledge of Scripture can just cut you down and show you how wrong you are. We try to prove points in debates. So all this theology to the church in Colossae is there and there's all these external pressures and Paul is warning them. He says, you could so easily turn on one another. You could so so easily begin to fight and argue among one another. You have enough to worry about with the persecution that's coming from the outside. We must be fully united inside in the faith. Paul knew what the the church in Colossae was going to be facing. In Galatians 5.15 though, it says this, if we continue to bite and devour one another we will destroy one another. See, the enemy doesn't have much work to do if we destroy ourselves. So this is why Paul is so careful in talking about this. This this whole section of Scripture isn't just about how we, we should treat people outside the community of faith. We should treat people with love, of course, that are outside our church. But Paul is addressing how we love one another, how we serve one another, how we relate to one another in the, in the body of Christ. And so, so here is, is, is what it all comes down to. In Proverbs twelve eighteen, it says, Some people make cutting remarks, but the words of the wise bring healing. What have your words been saying? As you think back to the interactions you've had in this last week, what have your words done? As you think back to the interactions you've had online, as you think back to the interactions you've had with family, within your church community, wherever it may be, and he goes on to say, make allowances for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. And above all, clothe yourselves with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony. I like this, this phrase, make allowances for one another. It's a necho, and I'm, I'm awful at rolling that, that, that uh, phrase, a necho. An necho means to forbear, to hold up, to sustain, and to endure, which is really interesting, because when I hear the phrase make allowances for, to me that means I'm going to put up with your idiosyncrasies. Your annoying chewing at dinner, I am making allowance for that by not strangling you. When I think of making allowance for someone, I'm thinking of, 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 you know, just tolerating someone. But that's not what the word means. It literally means to hold up, to sustain, and to endure with. So that means in someone's faults, not just their little idiosyncrasies, but in the things that are truly wrong, that, that hurt you, that wound you, you are to lift them up. Oh, that's heavy. But you might say, no, they are wrong. They are, they are in the wrong in this situation. They have wounded me. We are still to lift them up. We are still to champion them. Romans 12, 9 through 10 says, don't just pretend to love others, but really love them. Hate what is wrong, hold tightly to what is good, and love each other with genuine affection. And listen to this phrase, and take delight in honoring one another. I like it when I get a little cred. I like it when I get, you know, the pat on the back. But this is saying delight when others 
Delight in others. Even those people that may, have, uh, may, may just rub you the wrong way. Even in those situations where, where you feel like, you know what, they've got faults. Because that's literally what it says right here. Make allowance for each other's faults. You, you, you're saying, you, you might say, Pastor Brent, no. It, it, it means, you know, just make allowances for when people are really frustrating. Make allowances for when... No, it says they're faults. And how quick are we to correct rather than to make allowance? To punish and to straighten out rather than to make allowance. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't times for correction in the right time and season and place and when you're in the right place of authority. I want to make sure that's clear. But we are so quick to jump to the judge's gavel rather than to make those allowances. And then he says, forgive anyone who offends you. I could spend a whole series talking about forgiveness. I'm not going to dive fully into this. Um, Some of us have been carrying an offense for a very long time. We've been nursing it. We've been holding on to it. But we are called to forgive. And, and this, is, this is all great thoughts. I mean, on paper, these things make total sense. You're like, oh, these, these are great things we should all be doing. Let's do those things. But really, when the rubber hits the road, when we actually have to do these things, when I have to forgive someone that has deeply wounded me, it's a different story, isn't it? When I have to, when I have to lift up and, and celebrate someone, even someone that in their faults have hurt me, it's not the same as just reading it and con- conceptualizing it in my mind. But that's what we're called to. See, in our own power, these things would be impossible. But then when we are clothed in love, as Paul says, all these things become possible. He says, above all, clothe yourself with love, which binds us all together in perfect harmony. See, the way you're dressed changes your perspective. It reorients your, your priorities. It's difficult to be motivated to go to the gym if you're sitting in your bathrobe and sweats at home. It changes your orientation when you change those clothes. What you clothe yourself in identifies you. It tells the story of your personality, of your hobbies, your tastes, and your passions. If I was wearing a tall white hat, you'd say he's a chef or a cook. If I was wearing uh, scrubs, you'd know that I was in the medical field. If I had on a black robe, you'd say he's a judge. If I was wearing coveralls, maybe I'm a mechanic. If I was wearing spiky shoes and big shoulder pads, I'd be a football player or maybe a woman wearing a power suit in the 80s. I don't know. The way we dress defines who we are, what we do. It changes, it recalibrates our, 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 our identity. And, 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 and so this is what Paul is calling us to, to, to strip away the old dead self, the old self that had all these things where we want to tend to lie because it gets us a little bit ahead. We want to tear each other down because I feel a little bit better when I know that guy's a little worse than me. All these things that are our natural tendencies were to break them away and to put on the new self that is clothed in love bringing us together in perfect harmony you say Pastor Brent that change is difficult I've tried this 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 I, I've tried to, to, to act more in love I've tried to I've tried to be a more loving person I've tried to be uh, less less uh, angry all the time all these things and it's just really hard and can I tell you it is if it was easy I wouldn't probably be needing to preach this message I'd be like grab the pamphlet on your way out you're good to go it's difficult to do. 
But it's transformation, and transformation is process. You see, transformation is brought about by Jesus' work in us. It's not our own efforts. I like this phrase I heard. Jesus didn't die, so we would DIY. Our life isn't a self-improvement project. The Bible shouldn't be found in a self-help section of a bookstore. It's Jesus at work in us. That's how transformation happens. The Bible is not that self-help book, but rather as Jesus works in us, transformation occurs and metamorphosis begins. I watched an interesting little uh, time lapse, uh, I think it was like a BBC type thing, of a caterpillar turning into a butterfly, going into its chrysalis. And to be honest, I, I always thought, you know, like the caterpillar makes its little chrysalis, it turns into some goo and magic happens and out comes the butterfly. That's kind of how it happens. But they made an interesting statement. They, they kind of talked about how it occurs. They said that the actual body of that worm or, or, or uh, caterpillar, the body itself is discarded. And they said that its head literally splits in half and comes off, the body comes off in that chrysalis and a completely new body comes out. That, that body is broken away and discarded and, 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 and shed away. The old is gone. And you know what? That butterfly, butterfly can't climb back into that old caterpillar body. It can't try to climb back into the, that, that, little, that little crusty little self and say, now I'm back to being a, a, a worm. But rather there's a transformation that occurs and then from then on it is a changed creature. And we are being transformed as we become more and more like Jesus. It, it's, it can be painful at times. There can be, in the process, there can be a hurt and, and, and we have to dig up some things that maybe we've been holding on to for a long time. Those wounds need to be dealt with. Those things that we, we, we hold too tightly, the, the, the hurt that someone held against us, it's, it feels like that's our power to be able to hold that anger. That's my power to be able to hold that anger over that other person, but to release it is painful. But in this transformation, in this process, as it breaks away, the old is gone and it's traded in for something beautiful. And this morning it's time to address the wardrobe. It's time to shed what, what is the old and to put on the new. And I invite you to that this morning, church. I invite you to that. Let's take a moment, you and Jesus. Can we bow our heads and close our eyes together? This morning, Father, as we meditate on your word, as we read over these notes that Paul wrote to this church that was going to go through such a... He said, you need one another need to love one another, sacrifice for one another, and there needs to be a discarding of the old and a putting on of the new. And right now, church, we need one another. You need your brothers and sisters, and they need you. This morning, if you need to engage in that process, Maybe you've been trying to do behavior modification, just trying to knock it off with some of that stuff, but you haven't replaced it with what God has intended. And you need to invite Jesus into the process. If that's you, I want to pray with you. 
Lord, I pray with those who've been trying to do behavior modification, who've been trying to just fix what really is the the symptom, not the source. Lord, I pray for the courage to address what's really going on at the root. And then with your, by your grace, Jesus, begin that transformation process to root that out, strip it away, and put on love. Where anger has held throne in lives, where anger has held its root so deep and it has controlled everything and every thought, we pray in the name of Jesus for freedom. Where resentment has held its place, unforgiveness, saying, I'm going to hold on to this because this is my power over that person, I pray in the name of Jesus for release from that and the courage to hand it to you and to trust you with it because vengeance is yours, it's not ours. Lord, this morning we engage with this process. That we would make ourselves open to the King of kings and the Lord of lords to come in and rule and reign and to wrap us in his love that we might show love to one another. And we thank you, Jesus. Stand together, church. Right now, I want to pray over you as a church that we would be bound together in love for one another. Look across the room right now. I want you to look across the room. These are your brothers and sisters. We lift each other up. We lift each other up even when we're offended, even when we know they've said something hurtful. It's not that we don't address it, it's not that we don't talk to one another, but we don't go behind another back. We, we lift each other up, we encourage one another, we spur each other on. And that is the family of God and what we've been called to. We have enough external pressures, trust me, that we have to worry about on the outside. We should know that when we come here, we are among people that love us to the deepest degree. Amen? Amen. Lord, right now I pray over your church that we would be marked as people of love. Just as the book of John says, that we will be known by our love. And when we look at our brothers and sisters of, in Christ, that we would be moved with compassion and with such fervor that we would feel it in our gut. That mercy would follow uh, our relationships. That, that, that allowances would be made. That we would uh, find ways to encourage one another. To be honest with one another. And to love one another deeply thank you Jesus for this truth that we have that as new creation people we have the opportunity to live different, to live different than the rest of the world lives, to completely shift the paradigm this morning we lean into that and we thank you Jesus